0: Welcome to the 80s Glam Metalcast. Hey, this is Metal Mike in the flesh. And in this episode, we talk with Motley Crue historian and author, Paul Miles. He talks in-depth stories of Motley Crue. We also get into some of his books, like Crew Words. It's a Motley Crue puzzle book. And his series, Chronological Crew. This guy probably knows more about Motley Crue than Motley Crue know about themselves. Now we kick things off with the age-old question, did Vince get fired or did he quit? And you'll see it's not a simple one to answer. We also get into what follows all that, John Karabi entering Motley Crue and then him exiting Motley Crue. Now Paul's got some exclusive info about John Karabi, something he's working on, so you want to stay tuned to check that out. So if you notice, I got a Motley Crue shirt on with the vintage 1981 logo. I got it over at oldrocktease.com. If you're from the U.S. and Canada, you should go over there and check it out. They've got all kinds of cool designs from Motley Crue, Kiss, Guns N' Roses, Metallica, and Megadeth. And you can tell them that Metal Mike sent you. Use the promo code METALCAST10. Make sure you go over to oldrocktees.com. Well, now it's time to get into that in-depth conversation with Paul Miles about Motley Crue. Check it out. Well, Paul, welcome to the 80s Glam metal cast. How you doing, my friend? Hey,
1: thanks, Mike. Great to be here. I'm doing really well. Thank you. Considering it is 2020, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, we're doing as good as we can in 2020, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, Paul, you created uh, this book, which is called Crew Words, and this is a crossword puzzle book that's all based on Motley Crue. Talk a little bit about this.
1: Well, I'm in Melbourne, Australia we've had uh, some of the toughest and, and longest lockdown restrictions of anywhere in the world so um you know a lot of people really feeling it here but um while i was on lockdown restriction i, I thought well you know it might be a good time to uh, to come up with a, a crossword puzzle book on on motley so i, I spent some time i pulled it together and, and basically there's about 40 original uh motley crew themed crossword puzzles to really you know give fans you know hours of uh, entertainment and 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 I guess mind stimulation when they're sitting at home and 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 can't go out and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, put that together. It's uh, it's out there on uh, Amazon. In fact, all, all my books are on Amazon. If you just search Paul Miles on, uh, and Motley Crue on, on Amazon, they'll, they'll come up. But, um, yeah, the feedback I've been getting from fans has been great. They're really enjoying doing these crossword puzzle books. And as far as I could tell, it's the first crossword puzzle book on a musical artist that's ever been uh, ever been released. So, yeah, it seems like that's a bit of a first, but there's certainly, you know, thousands of, of clues in there, which, you know, it's not only kind of brain-teasing fun, but it actually provides a bit of a, a trivia challenge uh, for fans as well.
0: Because that's what I was thinking. If you do this, you're probably going to learn a little something about the crew.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the way that um, the, the questions and answers are structured, um, you know, you don't have to, you know, be an expert on the band um to be able to get the answers so you know it really caters for fans at all different uh, levels whether it's a new fan that just saw the dirt movie on netflix and and uh, and is getting into the band now or whether you know a fan of the band since the 80s um but it, even if you do get stuck on an answer um you know all of the solutions are conveniently located in the back of the book anyway so uh, it, it's all good fun
0: awesome so um one thing uh you've written some other books about the crew which are the chronological crew books these are like the diary of the crew that kind of go month by month day by day i can't even imagine what kind of research you did to put those together
1: yeah i guess it's been a labor of love over over decades now um it was back in the mid 90s uh in 95 when i first kind of got connected to the internet here in australia and uh, the first thing i did was search for my favorite band Motley crew and um you know there was only um, a small amount of information I could find on the band at that point. So, uh, you know, one thing led to another, and I decided to start my own website, um, you know, to get involved in that. And, and the, the topic was going to be Motley Crue. So rather than just kind of do what a lot of other websites do, I decided to really focus it on the history of the band because I'd read in all the magazines all these crazy antics and stories over the years of, uh, over the shit they'd got themselves into, basically. <laughs> And um, so I started to kind of piece that all together in a timeline, in order, so, you know, not only myself, but other fans could follow, ah, right, so they did this, then they did that, then they did that, so that's where the name Chronological Crew uh, came into play, so it was essentially this big timeline history of the band, and I launched that as Vince uh returned to the band at the American Music Awards on the twenty seventh of January ninety seven. You know, within uh, within a matter of weeks I had emails from Nikki and Tommy uh saying, you know, how great it was. They'd been reading through it and stuff like that. And that was really the start of a uh a long uh relationship with those guys. And yeah, I just kind of continued charting the, the history of the band over over more than twenty years. Um, so yeah, it's been a long time now.
0: That's awesome. You know, I've I've read a lot of them, and, and and it's just fascinating. A lot of stuff came out that that I never knew. So I really encourage everybody if you haven't check those out. Right on. I have a feeling we could probably talk for hours and hours about Motley Crue, but for the sake of time, if it's okay with you, I'd like <laughs> to jump to 1992. And the question it's it's still debatable. Uh, the band I don't even think the band agrees on this e- either. Did Vince quit or was he fired? What 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 do you think?
1: Nah. Yes, this is a bit of an age old debate. Um, I think it was Oscar Wilde that, uh, that said the truth is rarely pure and never simple. Right. And I think that, that applies to this. And, but one of the great things about the Dirt book, um, was that it was each of their own versions of the truth. <laughs> right. And, you know, and sometimes there was differences in, in what went down. Um, uh, but I think only the, the people that were there that day um you know truly know what transpired and and perhaps who got in first with an i quit or you're fired but of course recollections change over time as well but i think it's fair to say that you know it was very emotional at the time there was lots of anger and it was a case of you know "fuck you and "fuck you too and and stuff like that but i think really to kind of understand the situation properly you've kind of got to go way back in time and because it had been building for a long long time i mean even so back as far as the first year that the band was formed, that Christmas um, of 1981, you know, the band played a, uh, a show at the Country Club in LA. And, you know, some fans might have heard the stories about they had a stolen Christmas tree and they, you know, kind of hung uh, beer cans on the Christmas tree and snot and hypodermic <laughs> needles and all that kind of stuff and set the, uh, the Christmas tree on fire. Uh, before they went for that show at the country club. But another thing they had planned was uh, Vince had a Santa suit made for that show. Um, and, you know, people will know that they were gonna call the band Christmas earlier that year as well. Um, but uh, Vince refused to wear this Santa suit on stage at the last minute. Um, and kind of him and Nicky were, were butting heads over that. And that led to Nicky, you know, wanting another singer as the story goes, and, and apparently Stephen Pearcy uh, did actually rehearse with with uh, the other guys and was offered the position, but he, he declined it, preferring to stay in RAT. So, I mean, even back as their first year, there was kind of tensions uh, with Vince, and I, I think that's kind of been a bit of a, a constant throughout, and of course, we know when he went to jail with his vehicular manslaughter charge and stuff like that, there was a lot of tension and sure. stuff like that, but I guess if you fast forward it to the Dr. Feelgood era, you know, the band had a number one album, uh, that went four times platinum, hugely successful tour throughout 89 and 90 as that decade closed out. But the guys were just burnt out, uh, from so much time on the road. So as it got into, um, into 91, uh, their manager, Doug Saylor, was really keen, you know, on the band uh, taking a long time to work on their next studio album. Um, because it was going to take a lot to kind of top Dr. Feelgood since it was such a, a, a big album. And they decided to, to look at renegotiating their contract with Elektra as well. So while that was going on with management, um, basically they were taking a break, right? And and with that, I guess, lull in, uh, in the band activities, Vince started to get more involved with car racing. Um, he went out and bought a go-kart. And started racing at a track in Oxnard, out in California. Um, he even went to a racing school in uh, in Florida, and and then progressed to to racing Formula Fords, and and eventually moved into Indy Lights. So he was starting to get involved in in this whole racing car scene, but also at the same time he was starting to drink again as well. I guess you know not having so many commitments with the band, um, you know, it was kind of leading to that. But but when they were getting together and rehearsing for the album, uh, Vince was, you know, apparently often coming in drunk, um and, you know, leaving early to make out with, with different girls on the way home and you know, the main one there being uh, a young porn star Savannah. Um and and, you know, this is kind of when his wife, Sharice, was at home pregnant, uh as well. So yeah, he was kind of womanizing and, and drinking again and stuff like that and I mean, Vince even says in his own book, Tattoos and Tequila, um, that the night that his daughter, Skylar, was born, you know, he, he left the hospital and, um, and he went to Savannah's apartment instead. Um, so, you know, he wasn't really in a, in a good place. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just escalated, you know, through to, to like May, um, when their manager, Doug Thaler, phoned Vince and told him that he's not welcome. Uh, at, at rehearsals until he, he cleans up his act again. So, you know, so there was warnings even, you know, at that point, you know, in the middle of '91. But what did Vince do? He, he he took off to Hawaii with a porn star and, and maxed out his credit cards. Um, and then when he got back, um, he kind of calmed his wife down, uh, but then went out to Tucson and, and checked himself into rehab. So he did a stint in rehab. Apparently, the band went and visited him out there in Arizona and uh, and really tried to encourage him to, to kind of, you know, make the band his priority again. Um, Vince apparently agreed to that. And then they bought out the Decade of Decadence compilation album and, um, you know, Primal Screen was a, a huge single off that and they toured through, uh, they, they did play Donington in England and then did the Monsters of Rock tour throughout the rest of Europe which was a great run and you know Vince looked I mean as a fan you look at Vince in that era and he he looks he looks in great shape but uh, internally and mentally he was uh, you know he had some demons that he was he was working through so after that Monsters of Rock tour which finished in like September of 91 uh, Vince got more into his car racing hobby Um, he became uh, the co-owner of his own IndyCar racing team with a, with a formula, uh, with an ex-F1 like, driver. Um, and what he was doing was spending a lot of weekends at these race meets. And, you know, word was getting back to, to the Motley camp that he was, you know, up all night drinking um, at these as well. But, you know, Vince has said that he was actually using that whole kind of racing scene and that, that hobby as an escape from a lot of the problems he was having at home with his wife, Cherise um and he's also said that you know he felt now that he was 30 years of age he was becoming this aging rock star um and you know he had a chat with motley management you know telling him about these issues and and trying to get some help but um it it didn't seem to go anywhere i'm not sure whether doug failer you know tried anything to get him help or what but you know basically then things moved on to the end of the year so by the time we get to like december of 91 You know, Motley's, uh, you know, management camp, they'd worked through and signed a new deal, uh, with Bob Krasnow at at Electra, um, which came with a $25 million advance, which is just huge. Um, and they had some pretty decent royalty rates as well. So they got that sorted out, um, but the band was rehearsing in, in, uh, in a warehouse there in California. Uh, Bob Rock was, was busy at that time. So they were just working on songs. Um, and whenever Doug Thaler, the manager would visit the studio, it's like Vince was never there. And, you know, Vince would often say that he was too tired to sing. Um, and the band members were kind of really starting to get annoyed with like this lack of commitment to the, to the new work that they were, uh, they were on. And, and then he started taking kind of, you know, Thursdays and Fridays off to go to these race car meets, which are kind of a whole, you know, weekend long affair. So, that was kind of what was happening through through '91. Before we got to '92, when when the big bust actually happened. So as we move into '92, Electra was pushing, saying that the band was you know going to go out on a summer tour. It was going to be the biggest tour on the circuit, and the, but the guys were still feeling really um, road weary, um, and weren't looking forward to that at all. And then at the start of, um, the start of February, uh, was when there was a massive storm. Um, and, you know, this is, this is the time that the scene in the dirt movie where, um, you know, that fax gets sent to Vince, uh, basically saying, get your ass down to the studio. But, um, you know, there was flash flooding that day. Um, so bad that the governor had declared a state of emergency. Um, but Nikki and Tommy and Mick had like you know driven for more than two hours to get to rehearsals, and they were waiting for Vince for like more than four hours. His phone was off the hook every time they tried to call him, so they were just getting the busy signal. So they got their tour manager Mike Amato to send that fax through to Vince um, at his home in uh, Simi Valley. And uh, basically, the longer they were waiting, the, the more you know pissed they were getting with him. Um, but when the facts came through, Vince rang the studio, uh, he had an argument with Nikki, um, and didn't really want to, to attend because it was so wet out and stuff like that. But, uh, but, you know, to his credit, he actually, uh, did roll up to the studio. Um, but before he got there, you know, word got back that, you know, someone told them that they saw him out, you know, drunk the night before with a girl three in the morning. So, so when Vince finally got there, you know, obviously an argument took place and um, you know, during that that heated argument you know, the band told him they were thinking about getting a new lead singer Vince was saying, well, you know the album we're working on is stupid and apparently didn't like keyboards being used in it uh, and stuff like that so so he kind of, you know, stormed out uh, feeling that he'd been fired whereas Nicky felt that, you know he'd quit the band Um, and I guess that's the point where you know there's this ongoing debate around, you know, was he actually fired? Did he actually quit? But I think it was just a case of, you know, fuck you and fuck you in this argument. And, um, you know, and that they didn't remain in the, in the room any longer. But it wasn't until the next day that, you know, the, the band got together at Nikki's house, uh, with the manager and they kind of sat down and, um, and of course their manager, Doug was, <laughs> reminding them that they'd just signed this $25 million record deal and they didn't want to kind of jeopardise that. Um, but the guys kind of unanimously voted, uh, you know, um, and said, no, nah, that's it, you know, we're done with Vince. So so Doug had to uh, call him up. He rang Vince and, and said, right, that's it. Uh, the guys don't want you around. You're not to speak with any of them. Uh, you're no longer in Motley crew. It took then another couple of days um, which was actually valentine's day before they issued an official press release which basically put the i guess the blame on the race car driving so they didn't mention his drinking uh they didn't mention that he you know wasn't really liking the new songs but they just kind of said that race car driving had become the priority and you know that's where he was dedicating his time and energy and stuff like that and And, you know, the relationship had deteriorated and he just wasn't into the music as much. Basically, there'd been rumours saying that it was because of his drinking that caused the split. So Vince put out a press release and basically said, look, I wasn't fired for drinking um, and I didn't leave the band, um, you know, because of car racing, because, uh, you know, that's been a hobby of mine for a long time. He said, Yeah, it's true that oh, I didn't share, you know, the same passion for the band's, you know, music that they were working on, um, and kind of put it down to that. Uh, and then he jetted off to, uh, to Tucson to, uh, back to the rehab clinic as well to, to get cleaned up. So, um, yeah, so I think, you know, you've got to look at it in, in terms of that whole lead up to really understand the situation. It wasn't like he just didn't show up to rehearsals one day and, and you know, he was fired or, or he quit, uh, it was really building for a long, long time.
0: Sure. Now, one thing uh, you mentioned, and, and Vince has said this in some other interviews, but he said he didn't like the direction they were going. Like, they were turning into a blues band, and there was keyboards. So was Mo- was there really material that Motley Crue was doing? Like, were they trying to pull, like, a Cinderella and, and Poison that they all kind of tried the blues? Was that something they were thinking about doing?
1: Um. No, I haven't heard about the blues side of it. Um, I think if you look at, you know, where the music was going with the new songs that they wrote for Decade of Decadence and I think, you know, Primal Scream is certainly darker and heavier you know, lyrically Nicky's talking about you know, um, it's not kind of the whole party songs uh, of the 80s it was starting to get darker and, you know, and, and that came out towards the end of 92 and I think if you if you think about the music scene back in that time as well you know, in terms of what kind of metal and rock bands were popular, you know, the whole scene was changing.
0: Sure.
1: Um, I mean, Soundgarden came out, you know, with Bad Motorfinger in 91, uh, with, you know, songs like Outshined on it and stuff like that. And then Alice in Change came along in 92 with Dirt, you know, with those heavier songs like Wood and Rooster and stuff like that. I mean, you know, that album went four times platinum as well. And I think it was, you know, in the top 10 on Billboard and stuff like that. So, you know, there was definitely a shift towards a lot of this kind of heavier, darker. It was just more of the times it was kind of heading that way. Um, and I think, you know, Nikki was kind of starting to kind of move that way more when you listen to songs like Primal Scream, which was a success for them. So I'm thinking that a lot of the newer songs were starting to get, you know, um, more dark and uh, with deeper lyrics, um, dealing with, um, you know, more, I guess, critical subject matter rather than just partying um, and, and getting more aggressive and, and more complex. Um, I think he said at one point that some of the songs were in the vein of like Old Black Sabbath, yeah. which I, I guess is that kind of heavier and darker and, and the different arrangements, not just straight up kind of pop rock, standard uh, structure one of the songs they were working on at that time they said was uh, I'm a victim of a psycho bitch Um, some other song titles were try this one new blues um, and uh, bittersweet but they said that they were gonna record about you know 17 to 20 tracks for that new album they were saying this towards the end of uh,
0: 91 so in one of my podcasts I talked with Stephen Chirot from Kick Tracy and he talked about the whole experience, how he was considered for Motley Crew, and he jammed with them. And he says every bit of it was recorded. Uh, do you think some of these kind of things will ever see the light of day, these auditions? I mean, I think people would, would flip if they saw some of this stuff.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, um, I know that at the time, you know, there was a few people being rumored um, to, you know, to to be the new lead singer in Motley. Obviously, John Karabi um, Mark Torian of the Port Boys, uh, David Lee Roth, Steve Pearce, his name was bandied about, and I think about 20 years later, Sebastian Bach said that he was asked to join mm-hmm. uh, the band as well, but declined. But as far as I'm aware, it was only um, John Karabi and uh, Steve Shrove that actually uh, auditioned with Motley. So the, the day that Motley released that press release saying Vince was out of a band was Valentine's Day, um and then um you know, that's when it all went down with karate and you know, the story's been out there for a while around, you know, reading a, a magazine article and then he he, he phoned uh, Motley's office, uh, management office to thank Nikki for the plug. Um and if he could, you know, write some songs that'd be awesome. Um and then he got a call back from from Nikki and Tommy from you know from uh Nikki's car phone. As they were heading out, I think they were heading out to buy Valentine's Day gifts, um, you know, and then that's when they teed up that Karabi would go and meet them at their studio in Burbank um, to uh, to audition. Uh, I think it was on the on the following Monday. So Karabi did that that audition. Um, and then, um, then they got, um, Stephen Shiro in, I think that next morning to go down and, uh, and audition. And yeah, you know, I listened to that, that episode where Stephen was talking about that. And then later that day, once Stephen had kind of, you know, left the, the, the house, um, they got Krabi in again as well. And then, you know, this time, you know, they had their manager there and, you know, the band's lawyer and accountant and stuff like that. And, um, and it was you know, by all accounts, it was an awesome uh, audition. Um, and, um, yeah, and they basically said to Krabi, you know, you, you've got the gig and, and they were ready to pack it up. But he, he stuck around and they actually started writing songs. You know, they, they, worked, on, um, they worked on, I think, Love Shine and, and Hammered and stuff like that. And, you know, Krabi talks about some of these stories uh, during his, his shows that he, uh, that he puts on as well.
0: So ultimately, John gets the gig and they make an incredible album. This is an uphill climb, though, as we see, because basically you've, you've lost a key member and you have a new musical style that's kind of out there. So talk about that a little bit. What what are your thoughts about the Motley Crew 94 album?
1: Well, to me, I, it's, it's absolutely one of my favorite albums of the band. Um, and look, I should probably tell you at this point that I've actually, over the last... I don't know, year and a half, two years. I've actually been working with uh, with John Karrabi in helping him to bring his uh, his life story uh, to fruition. So, I'm currently at the point where Krab uh, and I have, uh, we finished the manuscript. Uh, we've we've got his story down, and and, and the attention with our managers is now turning to to publishing to get it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, as soon as we can for fans to enjoy next year. But it, it's it's an amazing story. He goes into you know all the details uh, about his whole life. I mean, you know we all know Nicky Six had a uh, a pretty tough upbringing and some challenging situations. While you know, Krabi's certainly got uh, a lot of uh, a lot of hardship that he had to overcome. Um, you know in his life as well. Fans will know a little bit about that from uh, the song Uncle Jack. Uh, which talks about his uh, his you know paedophile uncle, um, but yeah, it's it's quite an amazing story. So, you know, I, w- I won't go into a lot of that. Um, you know, Crab will be doing you know full press uh, on that as as the publishing gets sorted out and and we get closer. But um, but look, that album is is certainly you know close to my heart. I loved it at the time, and I, and I still love it now. Uh, I think it's really stood the test of time. And again, back back then, I mean, fans these days, you know, it's quite easy to say, oh, they should have changed the band name and, right. you know, and it would have been a success and stuff like that. But again, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier about that $25 million record deal, um, you know, Electra wouldn't have been too happy with, you know, <laughs> having a different band name, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that was obviously, you know, seen as a huge risk, so um, so I think that was a major factor uh, in things as well, which, you know, doesn't get spoken about so often. Um, but I think, you know, I mean, Molly's always changed. Like every album, they changed their logo, they changed their look, yep. stuff like that through the 80s. And I think this period was, was no different. And again, you know, I'm, I talked about Soundgarden and Alice in Chains earlier. But as we're moving to 94, you know, Pantera was doing... Uh, some, you know, some, some great business and stuff as well. And, and the guys, you know, hooked up with them as they were recording the album and some great uh, stories about hanging out with Vinnie and Dime and, and the likes. Um, so I think, you know, the music when it came out was contemporary in terms of what was happening and what was hot at the time. Um, but it just didn't resonate with fans. I mean, you know, Crab's voice is much, you know, deeper and bluesier than, uh, than Vince's of course um and again i think that subject matter continued on from primal scream what i was saying earlier and just got heavier and darker and you know the lyrics are you know amazing but it's just very different for what you know the majority of motley crew fans were used to you know from their previous albums uh you know in the 80s i mean maybe not so much shout i mean shout you know it's quite there's some quite dark lyrics in that um but certainly you know moving away from that through through theatre, um, I mean, it's fair to say there's always been dark lyrics. I mean, even a song like, you know, You're All I Need of Girls, Girls, Girls might sound like a sweet, you know, power ballad, but, uh, you know, it's <laughs> very dark lyrics when you, when you dig deeper. So look, I, I, I certainly love that album. Um, it's a real shame that the tour, uh, didn't do as well as what everybody hoped mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and, and got cut short. You know, basically by the time 94 uh, was up, you know, the band finished. They they played like one small gig at the start of 95 just out in Pasadena. It was just like a, a benefit show. But, you know, basically by the time 95 came around, they were, they were done on that album cycle.
0: I uh, actually got to see them on that tour. I was pretty excited. And one funny thing oh, that, awesome. what that happened during that show is, um, once again, I can, from what I remember, it wasn't, you know, jam-packed, but there was a lot of people. It was an, out, it was an outside gig. And somebody needed help holding up this big banner that said Vince who? You know, basically like taking a dig at Vince to try to get the band's attention. So I remember a friend and I were helping them hold up the banner. And then there were fans like, well, we like Vince. And I'm like, well, I like him too, but I want to get the band's attention. And I just remember holding up that big sign. And I can't remember if they, if they noticed or if they pointed to it. But it was a really cool show. <laughs> and uh, that show's actually on YouTube, uh, Weedsport, New York. That was the show I was at.
1: Okay, yeah, 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 I've seen that. Yeah, there's actually quite a few uh, bootlegs of, of that tour. Um, you know, and the way that it was portrayed in, in the Dirt movie, you know, a lot of fans who are kind of new to the band because of that, you know, it, it makes it look like, you know, there was like, you know, 50 people um, in a high school, you know, auditorium at those shows, but it wasn't actually that way. I mean, you know, they played to 20,000 people in Mexico City, they sold out the Budokan in Tokyo, which I think is about 14,000. So they certainly had some big shows, but when you look at you know a lot of those bootlegs like Weed Sport, like uh, I think it's you know, Deer Creek or Deer Park, uh, there's quite a few of them. You know, the crowd is a decent size. Oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, that's not to say they certainly did have low spots as well where, you know, there was just like no promotion because there was no one left at the record company. Um, as well to, uh, to help with promotions. They all got fired and stuff like that. So it was certainly very up and down and patchy and didn't do the numbers that they were expecting by, by all means. But that's not to say that the shows, you know, were empty and didn't have a great atmosphere and great vibe. You know, you watch any of those bootlegs and, um, looks like a good rock and roll show to me.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I had a great time, and I loved how they did the little acoustic bit there in the middle. Yeah, it was great. How great is that? I
1: mean, yeah. you know, you think, like, um, you know, like, to get the chance to, to hop up on stage, um, you know, with, with your favorite band and, and sit on stage as they're playing Mm -hmm. you know an acoustic breakdown part i mean
0: so back to the drawing board they're working on a a new album and the music's kind of going in all these different directions and then ultimately i think electra says that like hey if we don't get Vince back in the band, I mean we're not gonna support this new album. So ultimately, you know, right. Karabi's out and and Vince is back. It sounds to me, and, and I think I read a little bit of this in the Chronological Crew, I mean, this album's pretty much in the can and and it's just basically taking Karabi's vocals off and Vince has to sing it. Is that right? For Generation Swine?
1: Yeah, yeah. So as I as I kind of finished in um you know, touring that at the end of ninety four, um, you know, a few months later, I think it was, you know, like March or so of 95, um, apparently there was a meeting um, with the CEO of Electra's parent company, uh, which was Warner, this guy, Doug Morris. Um, and um, and he was putting pressure on the new head of Electra Records, which was Sylvia Roan. Mm-hmm. Um, he was putting pressure in to get Vince back in the band because he was looking at the numbers of, you know, what the self-titled uh, album uh, did or didn't do. And he was like, you know, this isn't working. <laughs> gotta get, uh, you know, gotta get Vince in the band. So Sylvia, you know, she was looking at it differently though. She was kind of looking as, uh, Motley as more of a tax write-off, um, and hoping they'd break up so that she can then, you know, allocate <laughs> other funds, you know, to other artists. So, so what that kind of came down the line and what they started doing was basically putting pressure on Karabi. Um, to become more of a star and, um, you know, telling him, you know, that he needed to do this and do that. And, you know, he goes through that whole, you know, story and, and, you know, the emotions of it all in his autobiography, which, which fans will enjoy reading. But um, but that was really kind of the start of it, um, you know, in that kind of first quarter of, of 95. And they were working on an album that they were going to call Personality Number 9. Yep. Yep. Um, which, which would have been their ninth album if you include the Quaternary EP that they did as well. Um, so it was going to be called Personality Number Nine. They were recording it, um, in the front living room of, uh, Tommy's new house. They call that Tommy Land Studios because there was like, you know, construction work. Tommy had just got together with Pamela Anson at the time. Um, they started doing construction work on Tommy's house. So they kind of moved to Nikki's home studio. Uh, which he called Butt Cheese West, um, and they were trying to kind of, you know, do, do it themselves to save money. Uh, they were working with Scott Humphrey, who had been the, an engineer on the Dr. Fieldwood album, but he'd never actually produced a band before. So between the, the three of those guys, you know, trying to figure out all the tech side, uh, they were trying to do it and, and pay for it out of their own pockets um, since, you know, the last album was, you know, considered a, a commercial failure in terms of sales figures even though, you know, musically it's considered a, a classic these days. So they were working on all this kind of stuff, but they, again, you know, with Motley changing every album, they were going for more of a, I guess, a futuristic kind of sound. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and this was causing some frustrations as well when things were changing all the time, because, were, you know, they, they'd twist knobs and, and change the sound on things. But they did have a lot of songs down, and... Um, there's a few of them on um on youtube i think there's like a, a demo of uh the song let us pray which which did meet the, the uh the final generation swine album there's a song called say goodbye as well there's a demo of that um these are apparently you know songs that they were working on uh throughout 95 uh, others like black box take me in your wings melody wrote my name in blood stuff like that so they did actually have a lot of that down but You're right, there was, you know, push from the record company. Um, They got rid of Doug Thaler, uh, their manager that I was talking about earlier, and they got a new manager in by the name of Alan Kovac. You know, it was probably about March of 96 where they got together uh, with Vince's manager um, and Motley's manager, and and they started kind of, you know, planting the seed in Vince's mind that, you know, he needs to get back into Motley uh, and stuff like that. And then in the middle of 96, Because you've got to remember, Vince still had a a lawsuit out against the band as well over his dismissal, right? Mm -hmm. And um, where he was looking to get, uh, you know, his uh, share of that $25 million deal and and stuff like that. So there'd been this lawsuit going on for a long time. And obviously, you know, the legal fees were were mounting up and stuff like that. So they kind of had a, a meeting in the middle of 96 where... Uh, actually Mickey rolled up to that with a t-shirt on, uh, with John written across the <laughs> front of it. So, um, but basically, yeah, they, they just kind of kept putting pressure on, uh, highlighting financial situation. Basically, you know, Kovac was, you know, trying to show them how they could make much more money, uh, together with the original lineup than they could, uh, apart and, you know, to kind of swallow old, you know, to bury the hatchet and, and stuff like that. So, yeah so then as it got more towards the end of 96 you know they they were still working on songs um but yeah basically they uh they fired karabi on uh friday the 13th of september and they told him that he was no longer needed as their vocalist uh although he did you know stick around and and help out and you know again he, he goes into all those details in the book uh of what went down but um yeah eventually yeah vince came back and And then they released uh, the Generation Swine album, um, you know, in 97.
0: I'm probably one of the few people on the planet to actually like this album. But I do like this album because I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. I I think at the time it came out, I, I mean, I've always been into 80s, you know, rock, hair bands, whatever. I've always been into all that. But at that point, even myself, I was starting to ex- listen to different kinds of music. I liked electronic music and industrial music. And I kind of liked what Crew did. I liked how they kind of took their, their old sound and, and kind of modernized it and tried some different things. I I mean, I'm not, i I'm not trying to say to people that this album is as good as the Beatles' White Album, but it reminds me of the Beatles' White Album because it's kind of like like all over the place you know and and everybody's got like a little individual moment for the most part like Nikki's got rocket ship and Tommy's got Brandon and I'm not going to say that I really care for either of those songs but the whole thing as a one I just I like it and I think some of the stuff's very cool and very dark, you know, um, let us pray yeah. rat like me. Uh, is there anybody out there? And I think if the production was a little bit different on some of those songs and it was, not like you said, you're talking about well, how hey, they are turning the knobs and they're making everything sound crazy. Yes. That was the times. But I think if they did a little bit less of that, I think people would be more receptive to the album, but I think there's some gems on there, man. What do you think, Paul?
1: I love that album as well. And, um, you know, going back to what I was saying at the start when I first started my Chronological Crew website, you know, I started writing that in 95 and Krabi was in the band at that point, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then, you know, I launched my site basically uh, at the start of 97 and it was, you know, only a few months later that they released the Swine album. So for me, that was like a big moment uh, for me and Motley, um, at that time. So that album is kind of close to my heart in many ways because it was the first album that, you know, I had the website up and running mm-hmm. for and I was tracking everything that they did and, and reporting on that to the fans kind of live as it happened. Um, but like you, I mean, I you know, I was digging what Marilyn Manson was doing back yep. then. Um, you know, there was a lot of that kind of industrial side coming through. So, again, Motley Change, every album, and I was expecting that, you know, different logo, um, you know and, and a different look I mean you know Vince had that kind of bob haircut and had red hair there yeah. at the start of the yeah. tour yeah. and you know even Nicky had the shortest hair he's he's had uh, on an album cycle uh, and stuff like that and the whole Tommy and Pam thing you know happening at that time as well was somewhat exciting uh, for me out here in Australia because you know you'd go and do your grocery shopping and you'd see the tabloid magazines and there'd be a picture of Pam and Tommy on there, it's like, holy shit, you know, I wasn't so much interested in the Pam side, but it was just cool seeing Tommy, you know, kind of there, um, you know, out in the media a lot more. And, you know, that obviously caused him a lot of stress and, and uh, you know, we all know how badly that ended up for him. But um, I just thought it was a really cool time um, that I felt a real part of in a lot of ways. And musically, I again, I thought it was quite contemporary Um, in terms of the sound and what they were trying to do. But, you know, I can certainly appreciate Karabi's side where, you know, it was kind of all over the place and, you know, and those issues as well. But, I mean, it's kind of interesting, you know, it's like they got rid of um, Karabi because the album didn't do so well. And it was like, well, let's get Vince back and, and things would be better. But when you kind of stack up those two studio albums of Motley from the 90s side by side... Um, I mean, Swine debuted at number four on the Billboard charts, whereas uh, the Motley album was number seven. Okay. So Swine p- picked it there. Um, but Swine spent nine weeks on the charts, whereas the Motley album spent ten weeks on the charts. They both went gold. Uh, neither of them went platinum. And after, you know, about ten years, the latest figures that I saw was basically Swine, had sold like three hundred and five thousand units, whereas the Motley album had moved like three hundred and forty five thousand units, mm-hmm. slightly more. So when you look at the stats um of the charts and, and the numbers there, I mean they were they were, you know, comparable and pretty much on equal footing, yet, you know, that's why they got rid of Karabi, you know, the management record company was to, you know, to get Vince back to do better numbers. But so to me that shows that it wasn't actually you know changing that front man that was the the big thing i just think it was a sign of the times in the 90s where a lot of those bands known for their success in the 80s were actually struggling struggling and and doing it a lot tougher and you know i know you're a kiss fan as well i mean look at kiss in the 90s as well you know um he had revenge and then the whole you know carnival of souls which again for me that is an awesome album i love carnival of souls yep it was, you know, right for the time. But there was issues with that, why they didn't end up putting it out and stuff. And so I think it was just all those bands from the 80s um, that achieved success in the 80s, you know, were on the kind of the the, the downward slope of the mountain, um, you know, through the 90s. And it actually took another decade, you know, for the tide to turn and then to, you know, to for, for people to realise, oh, shit, those guys are actually pretty cool, you know, or... or you know, let's have another listen to the music. Oh, it's actually still the test of time. Like this is good stuff. You know, to to get back into them again.
0: One thing that um, I was thinking about today, I was listening to Generation Swine today, and I was thinking about you too. Um, when U2, they did The Joshua Tree, and then the next album was Octung Baby, that was almost the same kind of a electronic sound that got implemented into their sound, almost similar to what Motley Crue did. But you ever notice that the hard rock, 80s hard rock audience is not receptive to that kind of change? See, where somebody U2 could pull that off, Motley Crue can't. You know what I mean?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely right. And I think, you know, uh, there's a lot of kind of hard rock fans that... Um, they're not really open to change no. um you know their their minds are, are more closed in a lot of ways it's like you know i like my meat and potatoes and that's it i'm not going to try this other fancy food or yep. Yep. you know um and it's the same with their music they know that they like that hard rock sound and that's it they stick to their guns on that and and they don't kind of open their palate to to you know to to try other things and i think you know, again, you know that debate around you know Vince and Karabi in Motley. You know, I see it all the time where there's there's so many fans are it's like, no, that's not Motley Crue, right. even though the album says yeah, it's Motley yeah. Crue and and stuff like that. You know, and they just won't have a bar, it won't even listen to it because it's not Vince. Whereas you've got other fans who are like, oh my god, like that that album is actually one of their best. It, it's amazing. Like, yeah. you know, I love how it's different, and and I think that's the thing with with Motley. You know, they. um and I think it goes back to the inspiration of, of artists like Bowie um, that Nicky was always, you know, into, and Tommy. Um, you know, that whole chameleon side of things, you know, changing every album. And, and I think the artists that have stood the test of time, by and large, you know, are ones that change. You know, Madonna changed a lot. Prince changed uh, a fair amount as well. I, I guess ACDC from Australia here is, uh, is the artist that hasn't changed so much. <laughs> no. No. Uh, <laughs> But uh, but I think a lot of a lot of artists do change a lot, and, and Motley, you know, I certainly put in that camp.
0: Yeah, you know, one thing that when you were talking about this twenty five million dollar record deal, um, I always kind of look at, and you, when you mentioned Kiss, I always kind of look at these parallels between Kiss and Motley Crue because they oh, really yeah. they really reigned their own decades. Kiss reigned in the seventies, and Crue reigned in the eighties. And it's funny is they were when they both came into the new decade, they both made these huge um, deals. And with Creatures of the Night, Kiss basically were trying to create the illusion that Ace Freely was still in the band because if they didn't, they were gonna lose a lot of money with their with their label. And it sounds like Crew kind of dealing with the same thing. They're they're trying to preserve this uh this money and, and you know and there's this shakeup. And it just I, I see the parallel. And the other parallel the only other thing that's funny that I've always looked yeah. at with, with crew and, and KISS… Kiss got super lucky, because the next decade was basically, they fit into it perfectly. Kiss was, even though they weren't as big as they were in the 70s, they survived and were pretty popular in the 80s, but to go from the 80s hard rock to the grunge, it was just a totally different kind of thing.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I really agree with that, and look, Kiss were my favorite band growing up as a child as well. You know, 70s Kiss, you, you kind of can't beat it, but you know, as you're saying through the 80s with Kiss, I mean, it's funny, like... Um, I actually, you know, had coffee the other day with uh, a clothing designer uh, by the name of Fleur Tamaya. She's here in Melbourne. Um, and she's the one that actually designed Motley's uh, Shout at the Devil um, outfits. Um, and, um, you know, at that same time, she was also working with Kiss. She designed their Animal Eyes, um, you know, outfits as well. Sure. and you know, you can kind of see some similarities there <laughs> yeah. with the kind of more of the softer black leathers and, and the studs and obviously the animal prints. But as things moved into that next, uh, album phase for Motley, you know, they went the full on glam with all the yeah. pink and, and lace and stuff like that for Theatre of Pain. Well, Fleur was working with, uh, with Kiss for their asylum tour and You know, that was so much more colourful as well. Paul with his, like, piñata pants and, (laughs) you know, and all that colour. Yeah. You know, which, again, was contemporary of what was happening. You know, you look at bands in the UK like, I don't know, Thompson Twins. You know, everything was that bright and colourful kind of 80s in the middle, of uh, 80s there. So, again, it was what was happening at the time. But, um, yeah, I might be working with Fleur next to kind of bring her stories together, a lot of stories, you know, which will go Kiss and Motley and all the other great artists that she's worked with.
0: Oh, that would be a fascinating one. Well, Paul, man, I really appreciate your insight. I think people are gonna love hearing all this about Motley Crew, and I can't I'm sure people are just gonna be blown away when they read this Karabi book. Now this will be out you think in next year.
1: Yeah, I'd say it'll be next year. attention's just turning to publishing now. We didn't want to um, we didn't want to write the book with any kind of publishing pressures of any deadlines or anything like that. We just wanted to kind of get the stories done in our own good time which we've done now, so now our managers are kind of looking to uh, you know, find the right home for it in terms of publishing to get it out there but uh, I can't see it being out this year, you know, it feels like it's almost Christmas now, so um, it'll it'll be next year at some point hopefully sooner rather than later but it's definitely going to happen.
0: And to get um, the Chronological Crew books and the Crossword book that Amazon, is that the best place to go, Paul?
1: Yeah, just head to Amazon um, and uh, yeah, just Type in uh, Paul Miles, Motley Crew, and uh, you'll see all my Motley books will come up, including the uh, Crew Words, the, uh, the crossword puzzle one.
0: Awesome! Well, hey man, thanks so much for your time. Hopefully, we can do it again. I think we could talk another hour. I think. <laughs> yeah, anytime. Hit me up,
1: Mike. It's been great chatting. You be safe. You too. Be well.
0: You too, Paul. Thanks so much. Well, that was a great interview with Paul. Make sure you check out all his books on Amazon.com, and don't forget about Old Rock Tees and that promo code. Metalcast 10, 10% off your complete order. And last but not least, don't forget to subscribe to the 80s Glam Metalcast. Rock on!